0: Good morning. If you would turn with me, um, we are going to be reading 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. And if you need um, need to borrow or need a Bible to keep, there are some in the back that you can feel free to help yourself to. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Now here is one of those passages in the Bible where you really realize you are reading other people's mail. This was not uh, initially intended for us, but by the providence of God through the ages, it has survived for us. So we're listening to it and we're reading it as ancient wisdom for current issues. We're looking at all of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church that he and his associates had planted a few years earlier. In the ancient Greco-Roman city of Corinth, we're looking at this letter as ancient wisdom for our current issues. And today we're really gonna talk about the idea, the issue of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. I don't mean political freedom. I'm talking about behavior. I'm talking about ethics. God created an abundance of good in his creation for us to enjoy and to admire and food and drink and sex and the arts and music and the sciences. We are at liberty as Christians, the Bible teaches us, we are at liberty to enjoy it all without fear of God's condemnation and without fear of other people's opinions of us. But all things since the fall of humanity have been perverted, have been twisted, have been tainted uh, by our sin and by evil itself. uh, And it affects every area of life and creation. Uh, The Bible says that creation groans uh, because of this. Uh, And so everything's been touched and tainted. Overeating, drunkenness, pornography, arts and media and sciences that oppose God's good purposes for his creation and for humanity. Now, you may be wondering if you're a new Christian or if you are a seasoned, continuing Christian, uh, are there things and pleasures and attitudes and habits that you have to give up in order to follow Jesus? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, I have a really good friend uh, from my college days who is still is an excellent musician. He is an excellent percussionist of Latin American and African rhythms, and he is a gifted missionary. And for some time he lived in Haiti doing missions work. Now, some Christian communities in Haiti associate certain types of drumming, and types of drums and percussive instruments with voodoo. Uh, And so certain churches in Haiti uh, refrained from the use of certain types of drums, especially the congas. And and my friend, that is his main instrument. That is what he is known for. That is what he is best at, the congas. And for his time living in Haiti, he essentially gave up his main instrument uh, in order to accommodate the sensitivities of some of the Haitian Christians. And I share that as just one illustration. This is a very deep issue, but I just bring it up by way of introduction to say what I think we're going to discover as we read Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that Christian liberty is the freedom to serve one another and our neighbors, that Christian liberty is a license to love. Now, I want to talk about freedom, freedom and liberty. I'm using the words in the same way. I want to talk about the freedom of our consciences, and I want to talk about the freedom of our choices, and I want to talk about the freedom of love, the freedom of our consciences to pursue the good things God has prepared for us to pursue, all the good endeavors, the freedom of the choices that we are able to make in this life, but finally, the way love interacts with all of it. Now, the ancient Christian, the, ainth, the ancient, I think I tried to combine the words Christian and Corinthian. Um, I'll separate them. The ancient Christian Corinthians uh, basically believed this, at least some of the most influential ones believed this My conscience is free because of what I know. The knowledge I have enables my conscience to do things. In freedom with a clear conscience. And so Paul quotes them in verse one. That's what he's doing. He's saying now concerning food offered to idols. This is one of the many questions, many issues that the Corinthian church in a previous letter that we don't have uh, posed to Paul. And they're contending against Paul's positions on almost every question they're asking him. And it's time to raise this issue. Uh, And so he says, now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and he's quoting their position, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, this issue of food offered to idols, idol food in ancient pagan temples in the Greco-Roman world, this is the topic for chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're not gonna gonna deal with all of it. Uh, We're we're gonna try and summarize much of it uh, today for the sake of time. But eating idol food in pagan temples... That was their question to him, whether or not they could do it in good conscience as Christians. So pagan temples in, in that time, were a, the temple was a social institution. The Roman temple, the Greek temple in the city where you lived, it was a social institution. Religious festivals and activities were done there. Social engagements and activities were done there. Birthday parties were had at the local pagan temple and food was offered up to some idol in the Greek or Roman pantheon or some mystery god from Eastern or Egyptian uh, mystery cults. The food was offered up to that god or that lord, and everybody ate the food in honor of that god. Now, if you were a Christian and you were invited by a friend or a relative to one of these social-religious gatherings, should you go? And if you go, should you eat the meat that's offered to some other God or deity or Lord? That's the question that they had. And the Corinthians were essentially saying, yeah, yes, we can do that. We can go to the temple party, to the temple gathering, and we can eat the meat that's offered to some other God. We can do it with clear consciences. And we have to ask the question, why did they believe that? On what basis did they think this was okay? On the basis of some special knowledge that they had. And this is what the knowledge was. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul's quoting them again. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. Sounds very similar to the Shema, uh, the ancient Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? And so that's the concept they're trying to communicate to Paul. An idol isn't real, and we know there's only one true God who has saved us, whom we worship. And Paul agrees with them on this knowledge thing. The content of the knowledge, he, he, he agrees. Look at verse 6. He says, yeah, for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Just as an aside, that's an amazing statement because Paul, who is Jewish, raised in a Jewish background, is essentially equating Jesus of Nazareth with the one true God. So Paul agrees with them, but he counters them. He says, this knowledge of of yours, though it's doctrinally correct, it can't be the basis of your ethics. It can't be the basis of how you behave and treat one another and what you encourage each other to do because he establishes the basis of his own argument against them all the way back in verse one. He had said this, this knowledge of yours puffs up, but love builds up. And the original words there in the Greek are actually kind of important. Puffs up is the word for being arrogant. And Paul's been using that word to describe many of the Corinthians earlier on in his letter. The word for builds up was actually a, a term used for construction. Jesus used the same word to talk about uh, the wise man who built his house. Okay? So, so think, of, think, think of what Paul is saying uh, in these terms. Knowledge and knowledge alone and knowledge for its own sake will fill you up with hot air. But love... For the sake of another will fill you up with productivity. The basis for Christian behavior is not simply knowledge, but love. Love motivates the Christian to do what she or he does, not simply knowledge. So Paul urged them on the basis of love to practice self-restraint. Look at verse 7. He says, however, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And what Paul is saying is this, in theory, some Christians know that idols are false gods. In theory, they know that that idols are fake, but by experience, emotionally, they don't know it the way one scholar puts it. Theoretically, they understand this isn't true, but emotionally and experientially, they can't own that. Because of their past lifestyle, because of their past behaviors, because of their past worldview, what they've come out of, their past still impacts their present. They are still sensitive. Their consciences are weak. He goes on to say in verses nine through 11, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He's talking about weak brothers and sisters, weak Christians. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And Paul would go on to say, uh, in ver- he would close by saying in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat. And so you have here Paul's authoritative position. Don't go into pagan temples and eat their idol food. He says something else about how to handle these situations in somebody's private home and how to handle the food you buy in the public marketplace. But right now, he's saying, and this is overarching principle, for the sake of those who are weak, in order to serve them, don't go into the public temple and eat food food offered to false gods. He's saying your conscience may be able to stomach that, and I, the pun's intended. Your conscience may be able to stomach that, but, but it will scandalize another person's conscience. Scandalize is, was literally the word for making somebody stumble. By exercising your freedom of conscience, Paul is saying, you're enslaving another person's conscience. Now I've got to admit, we are so far removed from idle food. I, I, like we don't, when we wanna have birthday parties for our kids, we don't take them to some pagan temple, we take them to Chuck E. Cheese, right? Or, or the bowling alley, or the pizza place. So, so this, doesn't, this doesn't really connect with us. But I'll tell you what does connect. We are very close to a love of liberty. It is very much at the heart of the society in which we live. And so we think today, I am free to choose whatever my conscience permits me to choose. And culturally and politically, people on both sides of the aisle use that argument to support their case. I am free to choose whatever my conscience permits me to choose. But who's guiding your conscience? Who's influencing? What is influencing your conscience? Jiminy Cricket said, always let your conscience be your guide. Fine, I don't think that's a problem. But who's guiding your conscience? Who's influencing your conscience? Well, if it's God the Father, and if it's the one Lord Jesus Christ, according to Paul, then by his wisdom, you can enjoy things without fear of God's judgment. In moderation and with wise constraint, you can enjoy the goodness of God's creation and all of your endeavors under the light of his wisdom. And by his grace, you can enjoy all of that without fear of other people's opinions, casting judgment on you for what you're doing and saying. Who cares about what, what people think of you? If you're doing something in good conscience by the light and wisdom of God, you have the grace of God to not worry about other people's opinions and what they think about you for what you're enjoying. Who cares what they think? Paul's essentially said earlier on in his letter. That's not what, if you're really legalistic, don't get excited at this point because the passage doesn't really address Christian legalism. We've talked about that at other times and we'll probably get to it again at another time, but that's not the issue before us today. But here's the thing. Some people have a weak conscience. Some people are still recovering from past abuses of the very things that you now enjoy with a clear conscience. Some people may never in this world recover from their abuses of some of these good things and for the way other people in their lives or society itself has abused them in, the, in a twisted pursuit of these things. And so Paul would say, In Romans chapter, actually, before I share Romans chapter 14, Paul later on in his argument uh, in chapter 10 would say this, all things are lawful. He's quoting them again, right? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. There you have it. And then he he would be even more direct and more forceful in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 14, verse 20 says, do not, it all comes home here, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So, the Christian can seek to honor God and serve her neighbor in the things that she enjoys. Christians can honor God and serve their neighbors in the things that they enjoy and in every endeavor. Honoring God is paramount. Paul will later say in chapter 10, verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, I wanna offer you two suggestions. If you're not sure whether something honors God or not and you're personally convicted over what you're doing and how you feel about it or over what people say about what you're doing and how they feel about it, here's a simple question you can ask yourself that somebody once taught me. Can I honestly thank God for this? Now I know at my kid's birthday party, I can thank God for one piece of cake, even if it's a big piece of cake. But I know I can't thank God for three pieces of cake. Can, I, can you thank God for the thing that you're doing, for the thing that you're enjoying? Or another way of asking yourself that question is, Does what I'm enjoying bring glory to God and allow me to enjoy him? If I know that the answer to this is no, then I shouldn't be doing it. And what always flows from honoring God is serving other people, right? The first and second greatest commandments. Serving other people, especially the weak And so here's a second question for you. If you're struggling to discern whether or not what you're doing, engaging in and enjoying is actually a good thing or right, ask yourself, does what I'm enjoying build up others? Now, for some things, it's something in your mind or something you're doing by yourself. So it may not directly relate. So just ask yourself this, does what I'm enjoying assist me, enable me, prepare me to build up others? Or is it going to prevent and compromise my ability and calling to serve and bless others? And if I can't answer these questions with yes, this question with yes, then I need to be very, very careful. And I probably need to ask somebody else for wise counsel to help me sort it out. The God of the Bible teaches us to accommodate the needs of the weak. Not to enable the temptations of the weak, but to accommodate the needs of the weak as they struggle to do and to think what is right. And we can all find examples in our culture and in our own lives to do, there's just, so I'll give you just a few, and, and at least one or two of them will be personal. I have in my own home always read J.K. Rowling's novels to my children. Uh, I have read all the Harry Potter books to my children at some point. I, I personally really enjoy them. And as a pastor and a Christian teacher, there is a ton of great common grace in the world wisdom for illustrations in teaching and preaching in all the Harry Potter books. There's some amazing stuff in those books about the world, about life. And in my former church, uh, all of us on staff would not talk about the Harry Potter books. And we wouldn't use Harry Potter illustrations, though I in good conscience read the books to my kids. I wouldn't publicly or even professionally with my colleagues talk about Harry Potter because one of my colleagues, another pastor had a wife, a leading woman in the church who had come out of witchcraft who had gotten involved in witchcraft outside of Salem, Massachusetts when she was a young woman. And so for her, even something like magic in novels that is used as a neutral force for either good or evil, she was very sensitive to it. And so out of love and respect to her, we just kept it away from our speech and our conversations and our illustrations. Harold M. Best used to teach music at Wheaton College And he wrote a great book about music from a Christian perspective that I think anybody who loves music and any Christian musician should read. Harold M. Best, Music Through the Eyes of Faith. Look it up. And in one chapter, he tells a story about a young man who became a Christian who had come out of a satanic cult. And he was growing in his faith. He got involved in a local church, and he was trying to move forward in his life and forsake uh, the ways of his past, the destructive, dark. This is according to... uh, Harold Best's story of the destructive and dark ways of his past. And so one day, uh, the organist in the church he was worshiping in started playing a song, uh, a piece, a piece that everybody knew and everybody loved in the church. It was kind of a favorite. Well, this young man got overwhelmed and traumatized and ran out of the sanctuary in fear and all of his former ways in the satanic cult came flooding and rushing back into his consciousness. The music, the piece was written by Johann Sebastian Bach. And I just listened to Bach's music this morning as I was trying to put some of this material together. Bach was a devout Christian and Christians all over the world for centuries have enjoyed Bach's music as an expression of Christian worship. But J.S. Bach's music was precisely the music that the leaders of the satanic cult used in all of their ritualistic cultic practices. And so when this young man trying to follow Christ would hear Bach's music, he was scandalized. He could not worship. I can worship to Bach's music. And, And Bach's compositions were an act of worship itself. But this young man could not worship to that very music that I love and enjoy. And Paul's point here is, if my music causes another person to stumble, I'll never listen to it again. Does that bring it home now? Some of you enjoy moderately and with wisdom wines. We have wineries all over Carroll County or craft beers, or the occasional fine Cuban cigar. I don't know if you can get a Cuban cigar, I don't smoke. Um, or every once in a while, a pipe, you know, like, like good hobbits, right? You, you, love, you love your beer and you love your pipes. Um, but you know, some people in this room still remember times where they were enslaved to substance abuse and to alcoholism. And they know that they can never again touch a drink. Some of you can endure the seemingly endless stream of gratuitous sex scenes in movies um, without being personally compromised in your, in your mind or in your heart or if you're married, in, in your relationship with your spouse. You can, you can see the stuff that our culture throws at us in movies and in TV shows and just frankly, on the magazine rack while you're waiting in line at the grocery store. You can handle it without being externally or internally compromised. But some people remember sexual, their own sexual addictions. Some people remember and are still suffering from the way others abuse them. Broken, destructive relationships that they are still recovering from and their consciences are still weak. But the Christian can seek to honor God and to serve his or her neighbor in the things that they enjoy always careful to, pr- to practice restraint, especially publicly and relationally in the things that they enjoy in good conscience. Christian liberty never enslaves other people to what you, sel- what you yourself enjoy. What you can do in freedom should never enslave another human being. If your liberty, if your freedom enslaves another person It's not liberty. Actually, you're probably enslaved yourself. If you can't stop what you're doing, even if it's hurting another person, you're probably enslaved to it yourself. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is, the word is destroyed. Not just tempted, destroyed. The brother, or you can say the sister, for whom Christ died. Thus, sitting against your brothers, you sin against Christ. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, when he says, Whoever, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Gee, Jesus takes this seriously right? He says somewhere else, the way we treat people, he takes it personally, right? The good you do to one another, the the good you don't do to one another, you've done it to me. You haven't done it to me. He takes it personally. The way one commentator puts it, I think this is exactly right. Christ died for this person and you can't even change your diet? Christ died for this person and you can't read and enjoy music and enjoy art and culture and substances with with some sensitivity to what other people are going through? If you're unwilling to refrain from what will harm another person, if you're unwilling to refrain from what will divide us, then you're acting in pride. It's not about God and your freedom in Jesus It's really just about you. You're enslaved to the very thing that you claim to enjoy in freedom. But freedom, true freedom, exhibits the ability to constrain yourself for the good of others. If you are truly free, you will be able to constrain yourself so that others can be served well. Jesus said, John chapter 10, I lay down, you know, he's talking about his sheep, the sheep that he knows and who know the sheep that know him and, and, and how he was going to die for his sheep. And and they hear his voice and they respond to him. And he said, in that context, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, what's interesting, I found that that word used there, authority, is the same Greek word that Paul uses in verse 9 to talk about their rights. So Paul says, be careful that this right of yours doesn't cause a brother or sister to stumble. It's the same word. You see what's going on here? We use our freedom to pursue our own interests, our own interests. Whether whether it's right or wrong, we use our legal and personal freedom to pursue our own interests and to protect what's ours. But Jesus used his freedom to pursue you. Jesus used his freedom to accommodate your weakness. Jesus constrained himself in all his freedom as God constrained himself to the human existence, to death on a cross, falsely accused, shamefully humiliated, and executed in order to accommodate your weakness because you couldn't come to him on your own, because you were too weak, because you've been too traumatized by living in a fallen world. Not just what's happened to you, but what you've done yourself. Jesus constrained himself for for your good. Now constrain yourself. In every good endeavor, constrain yourself for the good of other people. Look at your politics that way. Can you constrain yourself, regardless of your rights, can you constrain yourself for the good of a weaker person? Think of your friendships, your marriages, how you parent, how you respect your parents, how you argue and fight. Constrain yourself for the good of others, even if what you are doing is good and right. And what constrains us? Love. Love constrains us. What did Paul say when he opened up in verse 1? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Christian liberty is the freedom to serve one another, even our enemies. If you are so free, you can even, like Jesus did, serve your enemies. Christian liberty is a license to love one another as God has loved us. Your conscience has been freed by the grace of God to wisely enjoy all good things. Your liberty is constrained by the love of Christ to serve one another. And don't separate those two things. And be blessed with the freedom that Christ in his grace has provided to you. By the grace of God, you are no longer under his condemnation. And by the grace of God, you no longer fall by the opinions and judgments of others. So live As Paul said in another place, live as people who are free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up to sin and hurt one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who loved us and gave up his life for us while we were still weak. We praise you for Jesus who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. In his name, may we do the same. Father, give us, give us the wisdom, the wisdom and, and, and the joy uh, to pursue every good endeavor under your creation for your glory and for the good of each other and for the good of our neighbors. And Father, bless us with the discernment and the humility to constrain ourselves by the love of Christ in order to serve one another especially the weak and the least of these. In his name, amen.